Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. So most of you know that I moved to France last year to get my MBA, and since getting here, I've had the chance to meet some amazing people, especially some really talented professors from all over the world. Felipe Montero is one of those people. Before INSEAD, Felipe taught at Wharton. Now he focuses on global innovation, especially in emerging markets. He has consulted with companies all around the world and advises many foreign organizations about investing in Brazil. These are all great things. Felipe is incredibly talented and smart, um, but he's also very, very passionate about wine, especially from Portugal. So much so that he wrote a case study about Quinta do Vallado's role in the formation of the Douro Boys and the revitalization of the Douro Valley. So when I heard that, I was like, I got to get this guy on the pod. So for today's episode, he and I spoke about globalization in the wine industry by focusing on two places, Portugal and Brazil. We opened a bottle of traditional method sparkling wine from Serra Gaucha in Brazil and a red blend from Quinta do Vallado in the Douro Valley. And we discussed the convergence of the new and the old world. Quick reminder, I think most of you out there know, but old world, right, is Western Europe New World is any place where Vitis Vinifera, where winemaking was brought um, by Europeans. So we're talking the Americas, we're talking Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, things like that. Those places are considered the New World. That is a very quick, very non-nuanced summary of that difference, but we get into it a little bit during the episode. So let's just jump right in. Um, And just one quick thing. One of my classmates, an Aussie named Matt, he occasionally uh, chimes in. He sat in on the conversation, and he's good fun, one of my closest friends here at school. So if you hear an Australian voice in the background, that's Matt chit-chatting. So uh, let's get into it. Here we go. Felipe, one of the classes you teach is global strategy. What's kind of that course covering? What, what do you guys do? Yeah, just think about companies going global. I mean, which country they should go, how they enter new countries, how do they manage kind of headquarters, subsidiary relationships? Uh, how do they innovate globally? Where they should go? How do you get access to new innovations in different parts of the world? So I think what we put there is that you know, global strategy is a big you know, title. It is strategies that for companies which are going global, want to go global, want to compete globally. So I, can, I ask you to put yourselves in the shoes of multinational managers having to decide you know, all those interesting, tough decisions about how to compete globally. Should, should I be here. calling you Professor or Felipe? You just call me Felipe. FM. Did you ever have a nickname growing up? Yes, my father. My father is also right. Uh, had the same name, so I'm junior. So the diminutive of Felipe in Portuguese is Filipinho. So, Filipino. Yeah, Filipinho. Right? Pino. Okay. Filipinho is a little flip. So just throw I, a tilde on it. Yeah. Exactly. So when yeah. I was a right, when I was a kid, I was never Felipe. I was Filipinho. Filipinho. I love it. Cool. Well. Filipino, I'm very happy to have you here tonight. Um, we are sitting in your cellar right now. I'm admiring the many, many bottles on the wall. Um, but you are a professor at INSEAD. You are actually my first professor that I had. You teach the intro to general management for all incoming students, right? And the very first thing we talk about in there is dishwashing, right? That is the very first part of that particular case, right? You still remember it. I do. It's seared in my memory because that is literally the most challenging part of running a restaurant is finding the right dishwasher and making sure your dish pit is a well-oiled machine. Like our Hobart machine is the brand and like, dude, 
so messed up, like so foobarred so many times. Like when I think of the worst shifts that I worked in restaurants, typically it's something that went wrong with the dish pit. You know, it was rough. Dishes have to get done. It's the most important part of the job. So food's got to go out on clean plates. So I remember that it's seared in my memory. I was like, okay, I'm coming to business school. I'm going to go to France. And I sit down for that first class and fucking dishware. Yes. Fucking cleaning yes. dishes. It is wild. I, I was teaching this uh, last month. And I was asking students, you know, what's the likelihood that you're going to have any dishwashing challenge after you leave INSEAD? Very low. I said, what the heck? I'm giving you a dishwashing problem, right? Yeah. And very quickly, people say, this has nothing to do with dishwashing. It's pretty much about problem solving and team management and how do you see the different aspects of, of the problem. Yeah. But it, it is, you know, and, and we always play with that, you know, because you go, you come to inside thinking that you're going to be talking about, you know, Spotify or Tesla and, and the first assignment you have is dishwashing. Yeah, that's wild. It requires some kind of adjustment. No, it was great. I loved it. It was, it was the perfect start to uh, the start of our period, I think. So we are here tonight to chat about globalization in the wine industry and kind of the the gaps that exist between new world and old world. And I can't think of anyone better to talk about this with because not only have you written a case about the wine industry, uh, specifically about Portuguese wine, but you also have done a lot of work in the global knowledge management sector, global technology scouting, emerging markets. You yourself have worked with as many companies as FC Barcelona, Tag Heuer, Microsoft, IBM, Samsung, I don't know. I don't know where to start, except maybe with the sparkling wine that you've generously provided for our tasting. Wow. Well, what, how, do, how do we say um, cheers in Portuguese? Saúde. 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 Well, cheers. Right. Saúde. cheers. Intense eye contact during the toast. No, I think people don't care as much as yeah. people care about intense eye contact here. All right. Uh, but it's true. Yes, and you, you talk about all those case crisps, and, and I think the reality is one of the good parts of being an academic is most of the time you can choose what you study. So definitely, you know, a lot of the cases I wrote were cases about industries or companies that I was really interested in. Can you write a case about a business that you've worked with? Is it like a Taylor Swift scenario where like you've dated someone, they're fair game for lyrics, like, or are there rules about kind of that sort of relationship? I think what you have to do if it's a company you worked with, yeah. you should disclose that. Yeah. So when you read right on the cover page of a case, sometimes you may see, you know, Professor A or B, uh, he or she has worked with that company. Uh, most of the times, it's not that you have worked with them before. I think most of the times you have them, I don't know, as guest speakers before, or you have worked with another company. Because I think, and, they, and a lot of the companies understand that, cases are not PR pieces, right? So if they want to write, a, right, if they want to have a case written about them, which is just about the fantastic things they have done, this is not a good pedagogical material. So typically, the cases you write, Companies that you have some connection with, not necessarily have consulted for them or worked for them, but also companies who have this mindset of being open enough that you say, oh, yes, nobody wants to talk about all the bad things they have done. And we got to poke around in that closet, see what kind of skeletons are in there, find some bones. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they have to be prepared to talk about challenges, you know, and have to be prepared about, you know, this is option A, option B, what are the trade-offs? If they just want to come and talk about, you know, this, it is done, you know, what happened, there's no, no worth it. Okay, so 
In terms of the case that you wrote about the Doro Valley, right? You're, you're predominantly focusing on one producer there. And I can't imagine that most wineries are familiar with like the case method when it comes to MBA educations. Personally, when I applied to get my MBA, no one I knew in the wine industry had a degree from a business school. It just wasn't something that in the hospitality community, many people have. How did you go about approaching that uh, kind of writing process? Yeah, I think that's a fair description of saying no, most of those companies are not kind of necessarily for me. It's not kind of companies that a lot of MBAs would go and work and they are all kind of doing cases. So I think if I remember how it started, this case was clearly kind of personal connection. A friend of mine knew someone was one of the owners. So, and, and maybe there's a more generalizable point. I think for you to write a case, there must be a lot of trust, yeah. right? Yeah. Because companies will be sharing what they're doing. So I think we start them not knowing exactly how a case would look like, but we write a good level of trust to say, no, yes, uh, they did know about the INSEAD. And then uh, I think that the point was really to say, you know, what we want to describe, part of the story. I mean, there, maybe there are three parts of a case in that case, right? And maybe we can talk about each of them. Industry, what is happening in this industry? Okay. And, and they were really helpful, kind of also putting us in touch, not only with other producers around, so, but also you know, with the president of Wines of Portugal. So getting that industry perspective, so that was one part. The second part was really about understanding their history, what they have done. And I think the third part, which is more speculative, say, okay, what's next? What are the options? So I think when we were having this conversation within the beginning was basically, okay, these are three buckets that we need to talk about. And I think they were super nice and open and also very well connected to put us in touch. And so we had a lot of fun, drunk a lot of wine, met a lot of people there. There's an expression we say in the U.S. that it takes a lot of beer to make wine. Um, or it takes a lot of bad beer. I think I think the actual expression is it takes a lot of shitty beer to make great wine. Uh, just because like the people working in the wineries, they can't be sipping wine all day. They they need something a little lower in alcohol. But I wonder how many bottles of good wine it takes to make a great case. I think what is yeah I don't know. I think when you are, and I think that's the best scenario when you're really uh, working on a case if you can get embedded. On, right, on the industry and going there. Yeah. So I don't believe in writing cases only from public sources, right? So I think going there, and I think yeah. that case, right, going there, being, being able Must to... Must have been tough time. going there in the no. Douro Valley, yes. spending time in the cellar, tasting yes. wine. Must I, have complain, been I complain a lot to me, so this is, this is not what I, you should expect professors to do. Yes, going to Douro Valley, but yeah. So, so maybe we can, we can take a look at those three pieces of the case, right? And you said it starts with kind of a broad overview, kind of 30,000 feet, looking at the industry as a whole. And in that part of the case, you talk a lot about fermentation, vineyard management, basically how do you take grapes and turn them into this really unique product that has thousands upon thousands of years of history? How did you go about like communicating for people that maybe didn't have that solid understanding before? It, it is a, f- a fine balance because on the one hand, you want to give enough details for people like you, Chris, yeah. or Matt, who love the industry. So you want to get right the, the details of it. But also, most people, when they read a case, they are not particularly interested in the industry. So I think you have to give something that people can make, you know, can extrapolate this and say, okay, what? how does that compare with other industries? But you don't go as deep as if you're teaching only kind of people super interested in the industry. I think the specific angle which I approached the case was really about the globalization of the wine industry. So, no, there are many nuances on the wine industry itself. I think the one which I was really interested in, okay, can we understand how this industry is becoming more or less global? How different this is happening in different parts of the world? 
So a lot of the conversation for that first part was, okay, this is a very old industry, typically with very strong national roots. Is it global today? Right. So that was the, the initial question. What's your, what's your assessment? What's my assessment? So it's funny because you talk in the case, especially in that first third, about the difference between new world wine versus old world wine, from the packaging to the way in which it's made. And I think one, maybe it was a quote uh, from a winemaker, but it was like, in the US or in the new world, you know, brand concept and marketing sometimes precedes the product itself. Whereas here in the old world, the quote unquote brand is the appellation more often than not. It's not necessarily the individual producer. That comes really tertiary. It's the third thing in the, in the lineup. First, it's the country, then it's the region, and then it's the producer. You know, and typically when you go into a shop here, right, it's like, oh, I want to drink Sancerre. It's not, I want to drink Sauvignon Blanc or I want to drink whatever producer it might be, Vacheron. And that was a big part of the case, I feel like, was reconciling those two. It is so important because in this industry, if you try to understand the globalization of the industry as a whole, and if you don't separate new world from old world, you would be lost. Okay, because a lot of the things, not only right, we're describing, do you describe grape or appellation? How do you market it? What are the type of the regulations? How things are produced? How people consume it? Are so different. So pedagogically, it was important to start giving this challenge to students because if they try to say, oh, is this industry global? They would be lost. The first question is, okay, which part of the industry are you talking about? Is the new world? Is the old world? And let's, let's understand the different dynamics in each of them. So but I, yeah, but I also feel like there's been, especially over the past like maybe 20 years or so, that the chasm between these two categories has definitely like shrunk. It's definitely gotten closer and closer. You've got people like Michel Roland, uh-huh. uh, who we were talking about before we started recording, who makes a very extracted style in Bordeaux, but he also makes that exact same extracted style in places as far flung as Argentina and Armenia, right? So you've got stylistically certain winemakers that are essentially making the same style of wine in different parts of the world. And then you have young guns, people that maybe haven't inherited a winery from their family that are inspired by maybe some of the more natural winemakers of either California or the Loire Valley, making styles in each of those places. I feel like there's been almost in some ways a reaction to the parkerization of the 90s to making more light styles of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the United States and at the same time more extracted styles of wine in Europe. I don't know. Okay, right. so I'll, I'll put my academic hat and I'll... I think there's a hypothesis, right? So mm-hmm. one hypothesis is what you're saying. We have more convergence. So those two worlds are converging, so that chasm is reducing. I'm not sure. Okay, I'm not sure, first, if it's, to what extent is this really happening, to what extent this will continue to happen, and where this convergence is taking. Is, does it mean that more, the new world is looking more like the old world? So you get you know, the French producers going to Argentina, and they will start to produce kind of the, the typical Bordeaux type of wine, and then you're going to look, or you're going to have some of the old world producers kind of having funky labels and you know, not respecting the tradition. So I don't know. So I've, but it's a, I think it's a very interesting hypothesis to discuss because what's going to be the implication if you have convergence? Does it mean that really the industry as a whole will become much more global? Are you going to see more and more? Because in the new world, this industry is dominated by really the big, big players. Right? And we're talking before also about the, the beer industry. In the new world, there are a lot of similarities between right, what we saw in beer maybe five, ten years ago and what we're seeing now with wine. Does that mean that is this where the industry is going as a whole or not? All people say, no, actually, 
we are tired of getting all those kind of big brands and big companies. You no, know, we what really is important to have this small purchase. So again, yeah, I, I think what's interesting and as a case, you no, know, is to discuss what is it going convergence, not convergence. Convergence where are they going to a different place, both worlds? Uh, to whom is everyone? If you're really a very small niche player, so yeah. So th- these are the I believe the questions which are kind of super relevant today. And again, mm-hmm. I'm far from being a uh, an industry expert, but from what I could see, a lot of the economies of scale that you get is not really on the production, but really on the distribution, marketing, and branding. So as much as you know, will I be able to consolidate and buy a lot of small producers? Do I really get in the economics in the production? I don't think so. But if you start saying, no, I am consolidation brands, I go and I'm negotiating with Carrefour, with Walmart, with Costco, and I offer you, you know, 200 different labels, and then I'm just, you know, valado and I have only 10, it might be different. Okay, so you may have this power, right, this branding distribution powerhouse uh, operating in a different way. But you know, Chris, and we can go there now or later. I, I also think that the role of social media, right, the role of influencers, may, right, may change a lot of those dynamics too, because today, Right, you think, imagine you are in the new world in Australia, you are in the US, you are in Brazil, and you think about which wine you're going to buy. A lot of it has been influenced by branding, okay, and by marketing and effort, what you read, what you see. If now I start having a lot of, kind of I'm influenced by not by the big players, but by independent influencers who are saying, no, why don't you try this wine? Why don't you try that wine? I think somehow may affect that balance of say, yes, you really need to be very big, spend billions in marketing and branding, so you get very famous, versus, no, maybe you don't have to be that. So I think that part as well, right, the role of the Vivinos and, right, the influencers. Yeah. Of, I don't know, what's, what's I mean, how do you see kind of Vivino and influencers shaping people's tastes and how they consume wine? I mean, honestly, for me, the biggest thing with Vivino is that it not only gives you a rating, which truly is just based on what other people think, you know? Um, so I don't necessarily value the rating part as much. For me, the thing is the price that's listed there. People can quickly check to see what that wine costs on an average basis, whether it's in an on-premise place or an off-premise place. That's the biggest challenge is that buyers, I think, have far less flexibility in terms of pricing than maybe they used to. Certainly, you can still go to places that do like a four times markup, but someone's going to quickly check that bottle and the two big numbers they're going to see are either like a 4.2, some rating out of five, and then the next number they're going to see is average price. So from my perspective, I was always very conscious whenever I would price something on my list, I'd see how does my pricing, my markup relate to what someone might check on Vivino? Okay. So, and you talk about the U.S. So if that's you, in the assessment in the U.S., yeah. the Vivino price is pretty reliable. Yeah, I think so. I think it's obviously skewed because during COVID, at least, with so many on-premise restaurants closed, you had a lot of wineries that were targeting you know, retail establishments that previously saw themselves as an on-premise brand, right? So you had people that were you know, selling to big box grocery stores, honestly, all of those wines used to be by the glass at restaurants and that's going to drive sales. I mean, we noticed I was doing some consulting work with Rueda, this uh, Dio in uh, Spain where Mm -hmm. they make really delicious Verdejo wines. But the vintages, there was this like backlog of $10 Verdejo in the market because typically that wine is sold in a by the glass capacity at restaurants. But if restaurants weren't serving by the glass for the better part of 2020, it meant that all of these distributors were sitting on just like a flood of Verdejo and they like couldn't move it. And 2021 was coming into the market. 
And it's typically a wine that you drink when it's young. So it was a tricky thing. It was a tricky thing for sure. But in terms of just like the vino in general, I think it's done a great job of democratizing the wine industry. Like I don't give any shits about what Mark Squire thinks, you know, like he writes for the wine advocate. And to me, at least like just because a rating is given doesn't mean that you personally will like the wine. One very kind of strong influencer in when people have a good that's very hard to assess, you need some cues to make yeah. decisions, right? And cues can be brand, you trust the brand, cues can be price, you equate yeah. price to quality. And I think the power of rating in homogenizing consumer behavior across the world is, is super interesting. Because imagine, we, we talk about no, wine industry typically local, related to local tastes, local culture, kind of local ecosystem. And now you go and you have, no, we talk about wine advocate, wine spectator, any of those raters. And maybe someone right in India, in Brazil, in China, in France, in the US, Right? They, they, they go and say, oh, I'm, I want to drink a 95 wine spectator. And right, you don't really know, right? Yeah. Uh, you don't even know what's behind the 95, but somehow that may homogenize or may be a force homogenizing tastes in a way that you're no longer buying, know what is really the intrinsic, how many of us can really right, taste and say, oh, is this really a 95? Yeah. But you're buying what that rating kind of means right or well, legitimizes what do you think the it in some way yeah. so somehow it's, it's interesting right yeah. because you may have people think that they like the same wine not because they really like the same wine but because they drinking wines which are highly rated by someone else which plays that role of homogenization do you feel like there's been a time in your own kind of wine drinking career where your preference for wine maybe veered separate from what was going on in terms of like the rating system a wine that other people didn't seem to enjoy that you found yourself loving? Wine is kind of connected to traveling, to friends, to moments, right? So I, so I think that that connection of trip with what you drink is, I remember, right, uh, Mariana and I, we went to kind of Napa Valley kind of 20 years ago, yeah. and you know, and we still remember the drink, the wines we're drinking there, because, you know, it was a special moment. I'm not sure, right, that the intrinsic that yeah, I can't remember exactly what is how that compare, but you know that moment, and I don't care what was the, the rating that kind of that wine got, but that moment, yeah. and, and I think that's the, the beauty of a good like wine too, right? Because it is the way you drink it, right? Is the right the, the, the memories it, it brings about? I don't know. Do you feel the same? Or? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what what punctuates a trip? Or the, the memory in a certain wine region, it's not necessarily the individual bottles, but it's the, the people and the experience, and, and, and that's what I remember. But then when I'm looking at a wine list, those are the memories that come to mind, and that helps in the purchasing decisions. So the wine we've been drinking has been this really delicious uh, sparkling wine from Brazil, right? And you've spent a lot of time working in Brazil. What, what's kind of your relationship to the wine industry in Brazil, and how did you come across this particular producer? You know, Chris, when I look back, I started liking wine and drinking wine when at all I was 20-something. And I, I did a kind of a course to become a wine taster, a sommelier, just for fun. So I remember tasting kind of Brazilian wine seriously at that time. And at that time already, kind of sparkling wine in Brazil was already the one that people say, oh, these are maybe the most decent sparkling wine. I think today there are a lot more, uh, some kind of very good red wine. Um, the traditional re producing region Brazil is the very south of Brazil, 
Yeah, it's called kind of Rio Grande do Sul, the state, uh, Caxias do Sul region. So you have those producers there. So we're drinking a kind of a bottle of Miolo, which is a very traditional Brazilian producer. And uh, yeah, and it's kind of the, the sparkling wine in Brazil is pretty decent. And we're joking, right, that sometimes you can do a, a blind tasting. And even here in France, some of my French friends sometimes believe that the Brazilian sparkling wine could be French. Yeah, so it's traditional method. It's made with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. You said the southern part of Brazil. Do you happen to know anything about like whether these wines made in Brazil are just being consumed locally? Is the export market important to them? What's kind of the vibe there? So traditionally, it was kind of purely local consumption. Um, Probably cheaper to drink what's local than import it from another place, right? Absolutely. So if you look about kind of tariffs in Brazil for wine, they are unbelievable. So one thing that if you have Brazilian friends, you would see they come to France and they will buy a lot of wines because they're buying wines for I don't know, one third, one fourth of the price they would pay in Brazil. So yeah, so yeah. you have a lot of that. Um, but I think today, and I was mentioned to you, right, I bought this bottle in France. So I think you start having some of those producers, maybe the, the, the most traditional ones, the bigger uh, houses, start to export. And I think this is very important because right, they start testing the market, testing consumer uh, behavior and, and you know, yeah. So I, I hope that the Brazilian wine industry becomes more globalized, more inserted in the global landscape. One thing that's happening a lot in Brazil now in terms of globalization is less about the production, but more about the distribution. So you start to see more and more of kind of online retailing for wine consolidation that sector more professional kind of companies startups getting there and so I, I think if you look at the action I mean there will be some action in my assessment in the production in the wineries but I think there will also be a lot of action in the retailing right and the online retailing and one thing is also true uh, I think for Brazil but if this applies to many other emerging markets over the past 20 years the increase in wine consumption you know has multiplied, right? We don't talk about percentage, right? We talk about multiples. So people start drinking wine much more frequently. Uh, so, I mean, the potential for growth is amazing. And are there other things going on within the country of Brazil that really excite you, maybe outside the wine industry? If you go I mean, digital, right? If you think about the number of unicorns coming out of Brazil and the digital adoption, and maybe to me, there are two things going on. One is... You have the infrastructure for this adoption, right? So if, if you look in terms of mobile penetration, internet penetration, but it's not only the physical infrastructure, you also have the consumer behavior infrastructure, meaning kind of Brazilians spend so much time online. Okay, so if you look at the data, kind of Brazilians are one of the kind of highest uh, spenders in terms of time in social media, online, etc. So if you put the two, the two together, right, you have the infrastructure, you have the behavior, and you have people who are willing to experiment, there's a lot going on there. So, you know, from e-commerce to food delivery to, you know, car riding. My, uh, I just wrote a case about, you know, one of the largest e-commerce platforms. You no, know, The largest e-commerce platform in Latin America is a Brazilian, right? They just had their IPO in New York Stock Exchange last year. So you will have a lot of, so for me, what excites me, right? If you think about Brazil, definitely, right? The digital startup scene and for those, of us, right, interested in agribusiness, right? This is another area. 
and very sophisticated type of agribusiness, right? There's no longer, imagine, oh, this is labor intensive. No, this is all kind of highly mechanized, digitized. Um, and there'll be what a lot sorts of, of agribusiness are we talking about? So you, you know, Brazil is, if you think about a lot of things that we have in our breakfast, orange, right? Orange, uh, coffee, sugar, right? And then you go for animal protein, no beef, etc. But I think one area which is really promising, it is biofuels. Because what's happening in Brazil is one of the last producers of ethanol, sugarcane ethanol. And I think the next generation of sugarcane ethanol is going to be much more efficient. Uh, so uh, some of us here in Europe, we think you know, the future of mobility, or the future of car is electrical cars. If you go to emerging markets that are really thinking about how we're going to have kind of recharging borns everywhere in Brazil or India or right or it is right. It won't happen the next 10 or 20 years. So Infrastructurally, we just won't get there. We won't get there. You can produce a car, but you won't have places to recharge them. So having a biofuel, right? Having a fuel which is kind of less polluting. Uh, so yeah, these are exciting things to look at. Totally. Matt, any questions about Brazil? Just come by to visit and drink some more of this delicious wine. It's fantastic. Love it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, Portugal, which is probably your first wine love, right? The, the wines of Portugal. Would you say that's kind of your number one? I have to be careful here, right? Because my wife is Argentinian. So if I, if I say that my first... The 18 night. million listeners are, are going to hold you to it, whatever it is, you say. Is, so. Exactly. So I think that Portuguese wine is probably my... If I go back and imagine when I was a kid, when we were going for lunch or dinner with my family, probably there was a bottle of uh, Portuguese wine. So yeah. that, that is true. Um, and yeah, and, and, and then, but, but maybe if I update, you know, when I was a kid, you know, 34 years ago and now in terms of Portuguese wine, I think my recollection of Portuguese wine was pretty basic Portuguese wine. Have you tried kind of a Portuguese wine called Bateus Rosé? No, I haven't. Bateus Rosé is a very basic, you know, The Don Simone of Portugal. Right? I don't know. Or <laughs> barefoot or something like that. Exactly. Right? Very yeah. simple, you know, yeah. oh, those wines, kind of sparkling Rosé, you know, that you have every day. So I remember, right, when I was a kid, this seemed to be good wine. But uh, but now you fast forward yeah. kind of 34 years ago. I mean, the wines that Portugal is producing today, it is unbelievable, right? Really high quality, kind of well-recognized worldwide. And I think the Douro region in particular is, is super interesting because a lot of us would know Douro because of, because of port, right? Mm-hmm. So they really established a reputation because of port wine. But I think the most, most recent story is about kind of dry red port, kind of dry red Douro wine. I feel like that's kind of the challenge of the region, right? Is people know it for these two categories. They know it for Vino Verde, which is, you know, it's fine, but it's like flavored water with like a little acid. And then they know it for port. And there's this huge category of wine that exists outside of those two kind of poles. I mean, I can't think of more opposite wine, something super fresh and something more oxidative, you know, and then right in the middle, so many interesting things going on, right? I mean, is the Douro the region that for you showcases this more than anywhere else? I'm not sure if I say more than anyone else, uh, but yeah. uh, yes, it's definitely a very good uh, example. And, and I think, you know, when you are trying to build something new and you talk about, you know, we have two opposites, how you come and create a new category? I mean, your risk is either you become, right, nothing, somewhere in between, right? You're stuck in between, so no recognition, or you really create a new category. The people say, wow, there's nothing like this before. When they started really trying to market the Doro red wine, it could be that, okay? Yes, it's neither the cheap, very cheap wine, it's neither the port, so what is that, right? Yeah. I think over time they managed to, right, to carve out 
their little space, this new category. I mean, the way they, they describe it is, you know, we are the old, we are the new old in the old world. Okay, so they try to know we are innovative, as innovative, right? Or much more kind of open-minded than the traditional, I don't know, Bordeaux or Bourgogne uh, producers, but we have the same tradition. And let me give an example, which is in the case, um, which, I mean, I love that, that anecdote. They say, you no, know, one of those Bordeaux fairs, all the big chateaus, imagine, you no, know, Margot, Latour, they all have their kind of the parties in the chateau, okay? And they have a black tie. And they said, and they're there, and they said, how are we gonna go? How will we compete with that? And then they decide to have a pool party. So actually, the Doro boys, right, the, the, the number of kind of Doro producers plus the Ribeiro del Duero at the time. So what they said, we are, we have to do something different, okay, because if you, we don't have a chateau. So they did a, a pool party, invited everyone, right, gave towels with, and you know, and immediately they, and I think the difference between them doing this and right, a new old producer, imagine an Australian, Argentinian, they would say, oh, those guys are just, you no, know, they don't have any history. I think what's interesting for them was they have, you know, they say, no, we've been producing wine since this, right, 17 something. But at the same time, we have this much more innovative attitude. So I don't know, but to me, you know, you, yeah. you, when you go there, you, you smell that. You know, yes, it is tradition, but there's something different. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? Because they're a region with hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition. But how do you kind of like communicate that to people in a quick, easy way? Because there's hundreds of indigenous varieties across Portugal, so many different regions to keep track of, its own language, right? I mean, it's a, it's a lot to manage. And certainly throwing pool parties is a great way to get people's attention. But then what's the lasting impact of that? How do we get like this association of more dynamic producers like the Doro Boys out there for, for the larger audience? So I think there are two things going on. I think one is the importance, as you were saying before, of the wine tourism. So a lot of this long-lasting pressure has been people really going there and, you know, they have invested a lot on that. If you look at the numbers, if you look at how much do they sell in the wine store, in the, right, in the, in the winery, it is amazing, okay? Yeah. Because there's, so this constant flow of people going there. Uh, one interesting parenthesis there is we need to do that because unlike the French and the Italian, the Spanish have a lot of kind of very fancy Michelin star restaurants, we don't. So if you are, right, if, if you are a French producer, a lot of people will be drinking wine in very special occasions, in very special restaurants. If I'm a Portuguese producer, I have less of that. It's not that you don't have good Portuguese restaurants, but you have less than the French famous restaurants. So how do I create a special atmosphere for people to remember my wine? A lot of it is kind of going there. So I think that's one part of the story. I think the other part of the story is really kind of brand building, but brand building on really right, the, the history behind the bottles, right? the, the history behind the winery. So one fascinating kind of initiative they did, uh, which is also the case, they have the top wines called Adelaide. Adelaide is kind of the name of the matriarch, I don't know how many decades or centuries ago. And they decided to create that wine and they only kind of launched it in very special years. And what, the way they decided to kind of communicate how special it was, they start publishing advertising in the How to Spend magazine of the Financial Times. And what they do is say, no, the first, the first advertising is something along those lines, you know, so sorry, we, we had a meeting of the brothers who are kind of managing the winery and they didn't agree this is the right time to sell the wine. So if, if you want to have Adelaide, you have to wait, okay, until they agree. 
you know, next year or two years later, say, I have good news and bad news. Okay. Good news is they agreed that they will sell. Bad news is all kind of sold out. So put your there name you on Scarcity is in scarcity, the game, right? Yeah. Scarcity in that, that history. So I think they are doing very well on that. Yeah. I think what you were referring to before, the Dodo Boys, this idea of... So they, right, the, the most, some of the most prestigious Dodo producers, they got together and they produced their own wines separately in their wineries, but they decided to have their joint wine, which, I don't know, if there's anyone else, maybe, no, I don't know anyone So it's else. these five producers that work together, they all contribute to this one particular bottle. Exactly, right? So, and, and then, you know, it is a very special wine, scarcity, etc., but also creates this buzz about, you know, this is the region. This is where, and all of them individually are very, very good wines. So, you know, what are they doing? I'm, you know, something which is, again, another parenthesis, but if you go and you look kind of with more detail, you'll see there's a lot of, kind of, a lot of them are relatives, okay? So sometimes, you know, how did you manage to put together so many different producers, they also say, oh, yes, you know, it's true, but also we know each other for many, many, right? So, we see one another every Christmas. We see, we see one, another one another every, for Easter, okay. family reunions. Yeah. So there's that too. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, we were talking earlier about like brand and marketing. Like, is it is it the role of these producers to, at this point in the game, where they are in terms of visibility, promote Portugal as a category, Douro as the category, or their, their Douro Boys Consortium as a category? Like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, I, I think at this point, Portugal is already in the map. Um, I think Douro is getting, so at certain point, it was putting Douro there. I think now, at this point, it's pretty much kind of being able to show the best, right, as they see it, the best of Douro, right? So this is what are right, the top-notch of, of, of the region. But if you go back, I don't know, some years back, even putting Portugal, uh, uh, right, Having that recognition was important. I think now you've got more of that. I think mean, people know, they have heard more about Portugal, etc., etc. So, and as we were discussing before, it is true that uh, sometimes when you have so much of the mass, or you have, right, you are inundated with advertising for the very famous brands everywhere. Sometimes if you bring some novelty, because, right, people are hungry for, oh, here's a new region, it's a new type of wine, it's a new type of producer. So, yeah. Love it. Matt, any, any lingering questions you have either on Brazil or Portugal? None except when are we going? When are we going? This guy, he's got the travel bug. Indeed, I do. He catches flights, not feelings. I think what is important, especially right, for, for those of you who are thinking, you know, how this industry can become more professional. I believe there's a right, and I teach here at NCR to MBA students, I, I keep telling them, you know, this is an industry ripe, right, for professionalization, Right for, you know, how do you combine all the knowledge, right, the, the technical knowledge, the, right, the heritage with people who really understand business, right, and who can really help a lot of those producers to, right, to become more global, to be more competitive, to really to leverage their capabilities. So my, my mess in general is, you know, some of us are kind of love wine and want to talk about it as, you know, a drink or, right, as, a, as for fun, for pleasure. I think as a business, it's a fantastic business. And I think it definitely needs a lot of talent there. So go and work for it. Love it. Felipe, Professor, Filipino, thank you so much for your time. Love having you on. If people want to learn more about your readings, your studies, the work that you're doing, where can they find you on the World Wide Web? I think you just, you just Google Philippe Monteiro at Tinsiad and you'll find me on my webpage and 
all those links will be there. Cool, love it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Matt. Thank, Thank you, you Matt. very much. All right, guys, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can stream every episode of By the Glass on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Audible, really anywhere you get your audio content. And there's over 50 to choose from, I think. God, we must be up to like 60 or so. I know I haven't been recording as much over the past month or two, but uh, hey, we go for quality over quantity. Am I right? (laughs) All right, cool. We'll see you with another episode soon. Ciao.